This program is brought to you by the partners of A Root Awakening International. Help others find truth. Support A Root Awakening International today. Torah scrolls are impressive enough, but what happens when you look a little closer? Nehemia Gordon breaks out his 50 times magnification microscope to give you a detailed view of Keith Johnson's Torah scroll under a normal light, ultraviolet, and infrared. What you will see in this episode are details that few others have ever seen in the world because it's the end of the sixth day, the sun is set, and this is Shabbat Night Live. Shabbat Shalom, Torah fans. Welcome to Shabbat Night Live with Michael Rood. Have you ever seen a Torah scroll under a microscope? How about with infrared light? How about with ultraviolet light? Well, me either. But you're about to see what that looks like tonight, and it's some pretty neat stuff. Keith Johnson and Nehemia Gordon join us for one final episode of Unrolling the Scroll. And speaking of final, it is the final Shabbat of October already, and the fourth Shabbat on the eighth month on the astronomically and agriculturally corrected biblical Hebrew calendar. That means it is the last weekend to get this month's love gift, and let's talk about that with the one and only David Robinson. Welcome. Hello, Scott. Good to be here. Yeah, you know, so this is the final weekend to get uh, the love gift, and it's mm -hmm. the final teaching. Uh, the reason why that ties together is because the teaching for the love gift is kind of the bonus episode that to is. what Keith and Nehemi are talking about tonight. So if you like what you're seeing, you're going to see even better stuff. Yeah. The on, nuggets. Yeah, the nuggets on the uh, <laughs> on the uh, love gift teaching. And so that is something we'd like to give to folks who are supporting this ministry with a gift of $50 or more. We really appreciate that. We really appreciate it. It's not for sale. It's it's only available for October, and then we'll move on to something else. But uh, So that's a gift of $50 or more. And then there's something else that's really neat that we've talked about uh, having for yourself or giving as a gift, but when you get it, you may not want to give this thing away. This is yeah, a, this thing is so soft. It's <laughs> just beautiful. This there is you something go. you want to have, you know, watching TV or something, or just, you know, or, uh, you know, looking at the uh, at the uh, Taurus, looking, I was going to say, looking at a Taurus scroll. I meant to say, doing your Taurus study <laughs> on Shabbat. Well, if you have a Taurus scroll, that's great. Yeah. But anyway, so this is a great blanket to have. It's Yehovah's appointed times. And each of those appointed times are detailed around the edges, including the Shabbat, because mm -hmm. the Shabbat is also an appointed time. It is the first appointed time of Yehovah, believe it or not. And so uh, that this is a beautiful blanket to have. It's a gift from us to you to say, thanks for supporting this ministry. Uh, if you donate $100 or more, We'll give you this and the mm -hmm. teaching. And if you uh, donate $300 or more, we have another gift. We David, do. what is that over there? We have a kiddish set. Okay, ooh, look at that. Yes. Sterling silver. So again, this is the last weekend to get this. So today being October 29th, I guess uh, we'll have this just for a couple more days. A couple more days. Mm -hmm. And so it is four goblets, uh, nice sterling silver uh, wine goblets, or you can put grape juice in it if you have little kids around yeah, the house. Very heavy. You do. Yeah. Yep. It's a fun thing. And this would be fun for kids, I think, because they're so That's small. Right. Yeah, right? it would the be. Kids would get a kick out of this. So you could uh, really make uh, Shabbat fun around your house, welcome this Shabbat. That's what we're supposed to do. You know, we're supposed to make the Shabbat separate from every other day. That's right. Uh, you know, our, our, our Jewish brothers do this at, you know, to a T. They do it really well. Everything is very separated. Uh, they have lots of traditions that, you know, just are, are good to separate yeah. the Shabbat if that's what you want to do. But this, you could create a tradition of your own like this mm -hmm. uh, and, and just have the Shabbat separate from everything by bringing this out only on Shabbat. So that might be a great idea. And if you're traveling, it has a nice travel case. Yeah, look at that. It comes with a travel case. And it and has two small plates. Mm -hmm. uh, one, one we have determined there. this one's for butter. <laughs> and this that one's, one's for the bread. Or both bread if you really love bread or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, you can uh, welcome the Shabbat with this beautiful set with a kiddush. And again, that's our gift to you. Yes, it's a gift. You're not buying this thing. It is a gift. We want to say thank you for your gift to A Root Awakening, right. for supporting the ministry, for supporting everything that goes on around here. And we're going to give you this lovely gift uh, to thank you for that. All right, so let's take a look at what... Nehemia and Keith are going to talk about tonight. This one's a fascinating one. Take a look. Now, this is really important because there are discussions in rabbinical literature about writing Torah scrolls, and there's a debate about whether you're allowed to use iron gall ink in early rabbinical literature. And the assumption of many scholars for some time was, well, all Torah scrolls must have been written in carbon ink because in the, in the Talmud is a debate about whether you're actually allowed to use iron gall ink. 
And it turns out most Torah scrolls, the ones I've seen at least, are actually written in uh, in iron gall ink, not carbon ah. ink. And you can see that using this device. Um, sometimes you'll see that people wrote the letters of the Torah scroll or codex in iron gall ink, and then a corrector, corrector came along and made a correction, and the corrector used the other type of ink, the carbon ink. Mm-hmm. So uh, you can actually see layers. In the Leningrad Codex, for example, I was able to see two different layers of ink. Mm-hmm. There was the layer of the original scribe, and there was the layer of the, of the re-inker. The re-inker is the one who, who uh, went over it when the ink flaked off, and he uh, traced over the letters, and he used carbon ink instead of iron gall ink. Mm-hmm. So you see all kinds of really interesting <laughs> things that you can't see with the naked eye. All right, so that is the final episode, uh, what folks are going to see tonight. And uh, I, I just love Torah scrolls. I don't have one at, at my house, but they have two here at the ministry. And uh, Keith had mentioned that he's already looked through this one. He knows this one up and down. I didn't wow. realize that at first, but yeah. He has looked through this one, and there's some uh, there's anomalies in every Torah scroll. There's, that, uh, there's a tradition that uh, Torah scrolls are perfect. Mm-hmm. There's never anything wrong with them. And uh, that's a nice little thing to think about, but it's uh, it's almost like it's not true. It's not true. Yehovah no. kind of plays a right. joke on us and say, "Okay, y'all aren't perfect, and uh, I'm going to let you make mistakes, so you realize that you are fallible humans." Right. So His Word is perfect. And that's that's the neat thing is any of the mistakes mm-hmm. are covered up. Yeah. By His Word. That's right. Just like with us. Isn't that? Oh, isn't that interesting? Yeah. I like that. That's right. And His name. I love what uh, you know. So, some traditions we kind of say, well, they kind of get in the way of, of faith, and if you get too far down that road, down mm-hmm. the rabbit hole, as it were, uh, you know, you can kind of go astray. But I, I have to respect what those who are writing Torah scrolls did with Yehovah's name. Right. I, you know, th- there's this tradition that you know if you wrote the Torah scroll and you made a mistake with his name that that whole thing would be have to mm-hmm. thrown out. Well, okay, but as Nehemiah has brought out in this series, that if you are depending on that for, you know, you're a scribe and that's how you make money for your mm-hmm. family and you make a mistake <laughs> and it's taking you You're not gonna weeks. be throwing away that animal skin every time you no, have it. No, so, so, and then this is sort of like, well, what do you do? And so you kind of have to bend the rules, but at the same time, they wanted to respect his name. Right. So they did not scratch out, they never scratched out Yehovah's name. What they did was they cut it out, yeah. and then they used Yehovah's name somewhere, somewhere else. else. Yeah, uh, but they they never threw it out, and so it was always used somewhere. And if they had to repair the scroll, they would repair the scroll and put a patch over it or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And and in other places, uh, as you've seen on this on this series, that uh, they would if, if there was a hole uh, on the scroll, for example, um, if the, the animal had a process, and the, a lot of times you'll, you can get pinholes or right because you know yeah you're a hunter right yeah. so so when you do that so when you skin an animal and you stretch it out and you have it tanned and all mm-hmm. that kind of thing, uh, little tiny imperfections are going to become larger because you're stretching it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. I mean marks if it, if uh, that falls under the imperfection, mm-hmm. which it, it does. So, but uh, a lot of times when you're tanning the or when you're skinning the animal, you can nick it. Oh yeah, and so you might not see a hole until you stretch it for drying. Right, so. yeah, just natural, just from human yeah. error, right? Human so error. Human error, or maybe there's a blemish or some kind of like mole that the animal had or something like that. So it's just gonna become bigger when you stretch it out on a Torah scroll. Right. So they would never, if you've been watching the series, you've discovered that they would never write over top of that scroll or split up God's name or something like that. Right. So there's always a reverence for Yehovah's name, which I really and have I to admire. That, I, think I admire that too. That's that, a cool tradition. It is, it really is. Yeah, that's like, uh, you know, we'd never wanna, I guess we do the same thing with us too. We never use the Bible as, as a you know a baseball base, right? Exactly. We, you know, we revere yeah, there's the word. an honor that we have for His Word as, as His people, and, right? And we do our best to protect that. Yeah, indeed. So that's it's no no different than that. So I, I kind of respect that tradition. You might be upset at me though. I did have one I put duct tape on the spine. But I'm from the South, so I figured that's okay. My, my favorite Bible has a duct tape on the spine yeah, because I've used it so much. It's my favorite Bible, right? So anyway. All right, thanks, David. Appreciate it. All right, so Nehemia Gordon breaks out his 50 times magnification microscope to give you a detailed view of Keith Johnson's Torah scroll under normal light, ultraviolet, and infrared. But first, it's time to get your bread and wine for the Kiddush with Michael. So meet us back here in two minutes. When Keith Johnson purchased a centuries-old scroll, he got more than he bargained for. And now, after sharing the scroll's surprising oddities on Shabbat Night Live, Keith Johnson and Nehemia Gordon are revealing the best surprises of all in this month's Love Gift teaching. He said, Keith, I don't know if anyone's ever been able to show this sort of thing. 
this way. Did you not say that? I don't know that anybody ever has taken something like this microscope and showed it to a to an audience that wasn't a bunch of academics at a conference. In this month's love gift teaching, the Scroll Untold, Nehemia Gordon and Keith Johnson share the best kept secrets of one very unique scroll. From mystery markings to rabbinic rule bending, you'll love every minute of this eye-opening story. Right now, for a limited time, you can get your copy of The Scroll Untold by donation. Donate a $50 love gift and we'll send you The Scroll Untold on DVD or Blu-ray. Or for a donation of $100, we'll send you The Scroll Untold, plus an incredibly soft microfiber blanket depicting Yehovah's appointed times, available only from A Rude Awakening International. Or as a special offer, for a donation of $300, we'll send you The Scroll Untold, the blanket featuring Yehovah's appointed times, plus a silver-plated kidder set with four wine cups decorated with scenes from ancient Jerusalem. These are special gifts from Michael Rood to thank you for your support. Make your donation today and receive the $50 gift, the $100 gift, or the $300 gift. Don't wait. The Scroll Untold is available only until October 31st, and supplies are limited. Call now to receive your gifts. 888-766-3610. That's 888-766-3610. Or get your gifts online at monthlylovegift.com. Some of the traditions in modern-day Judaism are what Yeshua said are takanot, laws which change biblical law, which are forbidden, and Yeshua said don't do them. But other traditions are remembrances of good things in the past, and they are a shadow picture of good things to happen in the future. On the Sabbath, we take two hollow loaves, two loaves of bread. This represents the manna, the double portion that we received on the sixth day. This was God's provision for us. And this is what it continues to mean to us today. When Yeshua, just before his crucifixion, the night before his crucifixion, at the last supper that he had with his disciples, he took bread and he blessed, not the bread, he blessed the Most High. And he said, Baruch atah Yehovah Elohino Melech HaOlam Hamotzi Lechem Min Haaretz. And he broke the bread and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. As often as you do this, remember this, by his stripes, we were healed. And then he took the cup and he said, in the prayer of Melchizedek to Abraham, Baruch atah Yahuvah, Elohino Melech HaAlam, Borei Puri Hagafen. Blessed are you, Yahuvah, our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. And Yeshua said this, what you have been doing for a thousand years from the time of Abraham, this represents the renewed covenant in my blood. This is how I will pay for the broken covenant. I will pay the death penalty and do this until I come. Modern science is an amazing thing. If we look at our hands, for example, we just see a pair of hands, but if we put our hands under a microscope, we see all kinds of living things and things happening, a whole ecosystem of activity on our hands, just with the aid of a microscope, for example. When we look at a Torah scroll, we can see the same type of history uh, just lying there, but without that technology, we are never able to see it, but now we can. Nehemiah Gordon and Keith Johnson, welcome back to Shabbat Night Live. We are going to unleash some modern technology on an ancient scroll. <laughs> Amen. Well, in the last couple of programs, we talked about the, this Torah scroll, how it has an incredible history mm -hmm. coming from the, um, the dark uh, areas of Yemen up to the land of Israel and this miraculous operation, uh, Magic Carpet, and ends up in Keith's hands. He brings it to, to the U.S., and a few days ago, we uh, um, in, the, in the chronological timeline of the real world, <laughs> we, um, we opened it up, and we um, look at it and we see all kinds of interesting things. We saw the hole in a previous episode. Can I do one thing? Yeah. This is because our wives are here. 
I want to show a couple pictures of oh, them yeah. helping oh, okay, Nehemia uh, uh, doing this. I mean, it was it was phenomenal. And my wife's probably going to get mad at me. She doesn't like to be on, but I, but she's so. I called her today in the break, and I said, "Honey, thank you so much." Nutso husband says he's got to go and get a Taurus girl. <laughs> Nutso husband says I'm going to write a book about the name. I mean, on and on and on, and she's been so faithful. But these, that's one. So here it is. We can see. Okay. Um, we're looking in, at 23. Uh, yeah, so we're looking here at Leviticus 23, the section actually that I opened up in 2002 on Shavuot, or around the time of Shavuot mm-hmm. in red, and I'm actually pointing to it there. Uh, next to me is my wife and Keith's wife and Keith. And there's another picture and, I want you to and, show. Um, and here what we're That's doing is we're looking at a detail, and, and one of the things I discovered is on your iPhone, you can actually get incredible resolution photographs. Mm-hmm. Um, not as good as the microscope, but you can actually see details that you definitely can't see with the naked eye, mm-hmm. especially if the, you have the right lighting. Mm-hmm. So there we are looking at a certain detail with a very powerful lighting. One more. Um, and you know, so, th- so, so my wife isn't just leaning over to look. She's actually holding the light in the exact spot I need it. And Andrea, Keith's wife, is holding it in the exact spot where I can get an image there. And uh, here what I'm doing is I'm photographing <laughs> the scroll using a camera that costs, the whole camera setup is about $5,000, a 45-megapixel camera. It was cutting edge when it was released. Now they've gone up to 65 megapixels. But when this released, this was the uh, highest resolution that you can get for a commercial camera. Mm -hmm. And um, what we're doing there is uh, my wife and Keith's wife they're not just looking at what I'm doing, you know, befuddled. They're actually looking at little bubbles. I don't know if you can see that, <laughs> but there's a little level that's attached to the camera. And what they need to do is tell me, is the camera perfectly level on two different axes? Because mm. if it's not, mm. then things in the corner will be wider and things in the other corner will be narrower, right? You want it to be uniform throughout the image. Mm-hmm. And so they're actually, you know, directing me because I can't see it. It's on the other side of the camera. <laughs> uh, in, in some situations, yeah. we were able to use a, a tripod pod with a special arm that extends and therefore you don't have to constantly have them check the, the the level. You just do it once. But we didn't have the tripod in this situation. And so what we actually did is we went through all of Keith's Torah scroll and we photographed the, enti- listen, the entire Scott, thing. Listen, I'm telling you. And, and so we're talking, I don't know how long it took. It took a really long time. Yeah. Some of the some of were six. Was it between three and six? Well, we this is the interesting thing. So yeah. the tradition is that a Torah scroll, each sheet is supposed to have between three, three and eight columns. Eight is the maximum, three is the minimum. The first column of this Torah scroll, which has Genesis 1-1 and on, is a single column. Mm. Uh, Meaning it's a sheet that only has one column in it. And why is that? Well, we don't know for sure, but my guess would be is someone made a mistake in that first column and rather than uh, correct the mistake using um, some of the means we're going to see right now, scratching things out, he just removed the entire column. Mm-hmm. If I had to guess he made a mistake with God's name, or with, in that case, Elohim, mm-hmm. which is one of God's titles, and he um, probably cut out that sheet mm-hmm. and replaced it with another sheet that was one column wide. Mm-hmm. But you're really not supposed to have a column that's only one, uh, or a sheet that's only one column wide. It's supposed to be between three and eight. Well, that's kind of a problem when you're trying to take photographs, and I'm trying to balance this camera in my hand for over an hour, and, uh, uh, and some of them are three, so that's not as high, and some of them are eight, uh, which is, if it's eight, wow, I've got to like, really stretch to be able to get to it. And I've traveled all around the world and photographed using this technique. I don't always have people to help me balance, and so it doesn't always come out as nicely. Sometimes it comes out better when you have a tripod, but this is actually extremely important because there are things that I cannot see sitting here right now that I can see in that in the 45 megapixel camera. Mm-hmm. There are details I can see that I can't really see. I want to look at this word here that we can see from the overhead uh, camera. This is a live image that you're recording. It's pretty cool. And you can see this word is discolored as compared to all the other words around it. Mm-hmm. Or actually the parchment that it's written on is discolored. And why is it discolored? So here they had a mistake. It was an error. I don't know what the error was because they erased it. And how did they erase it? They took a sharp instrument and they scratched it off the surface and that was, is what caused the discoloration. And they wrote the correction over the erasure. Mm-hmm. And the word we have here is the word hachaya, the living. It says, fachor hachaya lamina, and all the living animals according to its kind. It's, it's about the flood. And uh, so mm. in addition to the discoloration, you see the chet there is a very strange chet. And this is a chet that starts out that when they would write the letter chet, there'd be a little bump on it, and that was called the camel's hump. 
And over time, the camel's hump grew bigger and bigger and bigger until here where it's almost ridiculous, <laughs> the camel's hump, this little thing up here. Um, it, it's, it's, it's almost like a little upside-down V on top of the chet uh, that makes, meaning normally it's flat and there's a little tiny protrusion on the top. And here it's become this whole different thing, a whole big, uh, it's the camel's hump. And um, the way they've written it is there's two Zions, the letter Zion, and they're connected by a camel's hump. That's how they've written the chet. So it's kind of become uh, ornate, I would call it, kind of stylized. Um, it's not how the chet was originally written even 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago, but um, this is how it develops in Yemen in the late 19th, early 20th century. Now, I want to do something, and I think we have time to do this. I want to show you under the microscope what this erasure looks like. Oh, wow. wow. Okay. So I have this device. It's called a DinoLite. Dynolites are usually used for industrial applications. And what do I mean by that? Let's say you have a company that sells uh, bed sheets, and you tell people it's a 600-count bed sheet, and you get your shipment of bed sheets in, from China. Well, how do you know if it really has 600 thread? So you need a microscope to do that. And uh, this device, this Dynolite, allows you to look at a very uh, uh, at a microscopic resolution, at a, at a microscopic image, and determine um, things like okay, does this have the 600 count, and various other things. There are uh, dozens of different models of dynolite, and they're used for different industrial applications. And a scholar in uh, Germany, a scientist actually in Germany, a uh, brilliant scientist in Berlin, discovered that this uh, dynolite that was designed for industrial applications, it wasn't designed for tourist girls can be used to study manuscripts of various kinds because it has three different types of light. It has a 50x magnification when it's on this, uh, what's called a light stand, and uh, the types of light it has are visible, which is just normal light. It also has, by the way, look this at is, th look, look, look at this. Uh, <laughs> this is what wow. the, uh, this isn't the Torah scroll. This is the, um, the sheet that we put the Torah scroll on. This is what it looks like um, under uh, 50x light. And uh, then we can also do, um, this is the uh, um, uh, infrared, uh, sorry, the ultraviolet, and this is the infrared. So she discovered that you could use this on manuscripts, not just Hebrew manuscripts, she studied all, studies all kinds of manuscripts. And uh, when you put it on the manuscript, you can see details that you can't see with the naked eye. And that is really cool. Um, you could also document it. What do I mean by document it? I click a little button here and I take a photo. Ah, okay. So we're going to look at the erasure that we saw before, and we're going to look at it under the microscope. And what you can see with the visible light at 50x is you see here um, the edges of the erasure. So this here is the original parchment, and this fuzzy part here, the fuzzy part here is where they scratch the ink off the parchment. <laughs> and it leaves this like kind of hairy mess. And you'll actually see in a lot of manuscripes, uh, Torah scrolls and codex, codexes as well, you'll see when they try to make a correction, they have a problem because they're writing over this hairy mess. Mm -hmm. Now, in this case, it wasn't such a big deal that they were able to do it. Uh, another thing we can do with this device is we turn off the light stand, and now we go over to infer, or, sorry, ultraviolet. Mm. And there are details you can see in ultraviolet, not in this case, but there's often details you can see in ultraviolet that you can't see. Sometimes you can see erased words in ultraviolet that you don't see in the visible light. Not, mm -hmm. not in this case, but often that is sometimes it's the case. And the other thing you can see is you can determine the type of ink. So there are two main types of ink. There's iron gall ink and carbon ink. And carbon ink maintains its opacity, meaning when I go from the visible light to the, with the light on, of course. When I go to the visible light, to the um, infrared light, it is just as dark as if um, I'm in visible light. Whereas here, it kind of ghosts out, mm -hmm. right? So it's beginning to ghost out here, and that tells me that this is iron gall ink. Now, this is really important because there are discussions in rabbinical literature about writing Torah scrolls, and there's a debate about whether you're allowed to use iron gall ink in early rabbinical literature. And the assumption of many scholars for some time was, well, all Torah scrolls must have been written in carbon ink, because in the, in the Talmud is a debate about whether you're actually allowed to use iron gall ink. 
And it turns out most Torah scrolls, the ones I've seen at least, are actually written in, uh, car in iron gall ink, not carbon huh. ink. And you can see that using this device. Um, sometimes you'll see that people wrote the letters of the Torah scroll or codex in iron gall ink, and then a corrector, corrector came along and made a correction, and the corrector used the other type of ink, the carbon ink. Hmm. So uh, you can actually see layers. In the Leningrad Codex, for example, I was able to see two different layers of ink. Hmm. There was the layer of the original scribe, and there was the layer of the, of the re-inker. The re-inker is the one who, who uh, went over it when the ink flaked off, and he uh, traced over the letters, and he used carbon ink instead of iron gall ink. Mm -hmm. So you see all kinds of really interesting <laughs> things that you can't see with the naked eye. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a bunch of interesting things in this scroll, and maybe even without rolling it, I'm going to show you some of these, okay? Yeah. We're going to use the, the microscope here, invisible light. I'm going to turn it on the light here. And you see this little dot here? So at first, you might think that dot is... Um, there's a freckle on the animal, right? The, but no, this dot is put here on purpose. Ah. And this is what's called a dry dot. What's a dry dot? You take the pen that you're using, usually in uh, Yemen and in, in the earliest times in everywhere, uh, the pens were, uh, they weren't quills. That's a misconception. Quills were introduced in Europe and Jews adopt them around the 13th and 14th century. In uh, most of the Jewish world, um, uh, uh, before that, or in the entire Jewish world before that, they used a reed. A reed is a, is a okay. it comes from, you know, the, the, you know, the brook. You take out a reed from a swamp or something like that or a brook, and you take a reed. There are certain types of reeds they used, and they would use that as a pen. That was their pen. And so in this case, what he does is he takes his pen and he makes a dry dot. Mm -hmm. And why a dry dot? Because there's a rabbinical law that you're not allowed to put any symbols in the Torah scroll other than um, the letters, so you're not allowed to put any vowels, so you're allowed to put the letters, and you're allowed to put certain other things, like these are called crowns. So you can put the crowns on the letters, but you can't add any dots, specifically vowels, because the vowels are a series of dots and sometimes dashes as well. And so in this scroll, they have all these dots, but they're dots without ink. Here's another one. They're all over this scroll, these dots. Mm-hmm. So they just took the reed and popped it on there they without They took a reed ink. that had no ink on it and they pushed it in. Aha. Uh -huh. Right. And so for here, here for example, um, let's see. I'm going to try to explain the uh, perfect, perfect round. Look at that. Right, look at that. That's, yeah. a, that's a triple dot. The triple dot was used in this scroll at the beginning of sections. Mm. Now, why was it used at the beginning of sections? I don't entirely know. But the scribe <laughs> decided to do that. <laughs> Uh, and these dots are especially very common in Yemenite scrolls. So here's another one. We have the beginning of a section. Hold on, let me see if I can find it. So here's the problem with working with... Uh, um, so there he doesn't actually have the dots. It's a bit hard to see here. Um, but often at the beginning of a section, we'll have the triple dot. And then throughout the, the, the text, he has these dots. And what are these dots? Let me, let me show you on my computer, because I took... And, and it's incredible. These photos I'm about to show you on my computer... I took with an iPhone, That's right? This isn't some special equipment. It's a iPhone 12, and I can see things I can't even see with the naked eye. Uh, now, uh, if I was younger, I might be able to see them with the naked <laughs> eye, but, and if I had the right lighting. But um, here, let's go to this here. Um, so this is what we were looking at before. This is the, the correction of the word hachaya in Genesis, and then here you have a dot, here you have a dot, here you have a dot, you have all these different dots. I'm going to zoom in on these so people can see them. Um, so what are the different dots? And the different dots in this scroll have different meanings. And this is what shocked me because I've never seen this before. I've looked at a lot of scrolls. I've looked at a lot of Yemenite scrolls. I've looked at Yemenite scrolls that are a lot older than this one. Mm -hmm. I've looked at Yemenite scrolls from the 15th century at the British Library that have actually an incredible story to them. Can I share the story of the, Brit the British Library? Go on. It's yes. incredible. So, the, so there was this man uh, in the 19th century, meaning the 1800s, who was a Jew who, on, while he was immigrating, he was on his way to move to Israel. And on his way to Israel, he uh, became a Christian, and uh, moved to Israel, even though he was a Christian, and he was very much unliked in the Jewish community because he had converted to Christianity. And they gave him a really hard time. Well, he lived in the Christian quarter of the old city, 
And he started a business, and the business was he was an antiquities dealer. Mm. His name was Moses Shapiro. <laughs> and Moses Shapiro is pretty well known today in certain circles, not for what I'm about to tell you about, but for something else. So what he's best known for is he found these scrolls that he sold for one million pounds to the British Museum. And they were later proclaimed to be a forgery. Mm. And mm. what was the reason they said they were forgeries? And it's interesting because the number one critic he had was a man named C.D. Ginsburg or Christian David Ginsburg. Mm -hmm. David Ginsburg was also a Jewish convert to Christianity, but he also happened to be the top scholar of the 19th century of the Masoretic text. Mm -hmm. And David Ginsburg studied the scrolls that Moses Shapira uh, found in Israel next to the Dead Sea, or he didn't find them himself, right? Somebody brought them to him, the story mm -hmm. is, and then he as the antiquities dealer brought them to the British Library. They had found these scrolls next to the Dead Sea, and G Ginsburg looks at these and he says, no, these are fake, these aren't real. And how do we know they're not real? Well, first of all, nothing can survive in Israel next to the Dead Sea for thousands of years. It's not possible, I meaning rocks can survive, but not parchment, not leather, because they can survive in Egypt. We have lots of papyri in Egypt that are far older and leather, far older than that. But they said this couldn't happen in Israel. It's too wet, even next to the Dead Sea. Mm. Um, somebody say, uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> and why do I say, uh-oh? This is in the late 1800s. Well, uh, in 1947, famously, a Bedouin shepherd found, found scrolls next to the Dead Sea. Mm -hmm. And then a few years later, somebody said, oh, we said Shapira's scrolls were fake because nothing could survive. No leather could survive next to the Dead Sea. By the way, they found next to the Dead Sea uh, a reed mat that they claim is from the Chalcolithic period, meaning it's something like over 4,000 years old, mm. if you accept their chronology. It's a lot older than the Dead Sea Scrolls. So things do survive. But in Shapira's time, they didn't know that. So Shapira is uh, discredited as a forger, as a fake, and they destroy his life over these scrolls that, that they claimed were fake. And now the question is, where are the scrolls? Mm. Where is Shapira's scrolls? They might be real. Maybe they are fake. But now we can do carbon-14 testing that didn't exist, mm. exist in the time of Shapira. We can find objectively, maybe it's not all that accurate. Maybe it's off by a few hundred years. But we'll know, is it from the 19th century or is it from the, the second century uh, BC, right? You can find that out more or less. Nobody knows where the scrolls are. Shapira's scrolls mm. are missing. It is what it is. People have been looking them for, for them now for decades, hoping to find them, but they went missing. So Shapira had another situation. He went to Yemen, and in Yemen, he asked the Jews, I want to buy your scrolls. People will be interested in these scrolls. And they said, no, these are our sacred objects. We can't give you our scrolls. And the story that the Jews of Yemen told is that he then went to the government of Yemen, the Muslim government, bribed people in the government and said, go seize those scrolls for me. I'll give you a lot of money. Okay, I don't know if that's true or not. That was the accusation that was made against Shapira. He then goes back home to Israel after he sells the scrolls to the British Library. And there are Jews from Yemen who had moved to Israel in the 1860s, and they see him on the streets of Jerusalem. And they say, that's the guy who, sold, who stole our scrolls. And they go to the police, and the police could care less, right? It didn't happen in Israel, it happened in Yemen. Right? Now, that was all part of the Ottoman Empire, but they still didn't care. Uh, especially because it involved corrupt Turkish officials, right? But in any event, I've examined the scrolls that Shapira brought, the real scrolls, not the fake ones, right, that were 500 years old that were brought from Yemen, and those scrolls are far older than this, and I didn't see these features in the scroll. Mm -hmm. And I've looked at a lot of other scrolls that I didn't see this um, from Yemen, I haven't seen this. So this is very interesting. Now, it's not, I'm told by, by someone who's an expert in Yemenite scrolls it's not unique, but it is very unusual. Uh, so... Hang on uh, one sec. Oh, are we Hold out of time? time? Yeah. We're out of time. Oh, but, we're no. gonna, but we're going to come back. So okay. One second, one second. So okay. well, we're going to come back with uh, why this is so unique in this scroll. Yeah. Uh, I can't wait to hear the answer. I'm sure you can't either. So yeah. uh, we want to thank you for making this show even possible because yeah. without your support, this wouldn't happen. Thank you for bringing <laughs> Keith here. Thank you for bringing Nehemia here. Uh, we're going to give you an opportunity to give again. Why? Because we'd like this to go to other folks. Wouldn't you like... 
for other people to see this, and you can do that with your donation. So we thank you in advance. We'll give you a couple minutes to do that. We'll be right back. Thank you for your support of Shabbat Night Live. We had to cut a story off right before we went to the break, Nehemia. Please continue with this story of, of how this scroll and, and, the, and the reed markings, uh, yeah. the, the dry dots. The dry dots, dots right? Yeah. So it's full of these dry dots. And I'll actually come back to that in a minute, but during the break, Keith mentioned something to me that I think is worth talking about. What we can see here, uh, uh, this photo I took uh, on the computer, this is from the same scroll that's, that's right here in front of us. And here we have, we saw this before, it's uh, the word hachaya written over an erasure. And uh, I've been traveling around the world um, looking at Torah scrolls and codices and all kinds of Hebrew manuscripts. Um, this device here, this thing, this um, DynaLight that does 50X ultraviolet infrared um, and visible light, I've used this now on the Aleppo Codex, the Leningrad Codex, the uh, manuscript called Sassoon 1053, which is in Geneva, Switzerland now. Three. Uh, and I have used it on the Damascus Crown, which That's is at the four. National Library of Israel. That's four of the six key manuscripts. And why did I do it? For a number of reasons. One of the reasons is I was told by the critics that you know my, my, my argument, and I presented this in my book, Shattering the Conspiracy of Silence, based on what I knew at the time, my argument was that in certain places in the Aleppo Codex, the scribe made a mistake and he put in the full vowels, even though it was not his intention to put in the full vowels. Mm -hmm. How do I know it wasn't his intention? Because in most places he didn't put in the full vowels. And therefore, whenever he put it in, that was a mistake. This book, Shattering Conspiracy of Silence, has now been translated into Spanish. Rompiendo la conspiración del silencio. <laughs> and I'm, remind, well I'm reminded of uh, one of my favorite movies, The Frisco Kid. Mm -hmm. In The Frisco Kid, it's a story about a Jewish rabbi who's taking a Torah scroll from Lithuania across the United States to, to San Francisco, and he literally misses the boat to San Francisco from New York, and so he travels across the Old West uh, with Harrison Ford. And uh, as he's traveling across the Old West, he and his companion are uh, abducted by American, uh, Native Americans, by Indians, and the Indian chief holds up the Torah scroll, and he says, I read this entire book, he says to his followers, his, his um, community, and he turns to one of the people, he says, didn't understand a single word. Um, <laughs> that's the case for me in Rompiendo, des, la, uh, Rompiendo la Conspiración del Silencio. Didn't understand a single word, but I'm told it's a good translation. So in that book, I present, the, both in English and Spanish, apparently, I present the argument that um, the scribe accidentally put in the full vowels. When I wrote that book, I knew about the Aleppo Codex. I knew about the Leningrad Codex. And I believe by then we knew about the Cairo yes. Codex of the yeah. Prophets. We didn't know about the Damascus Crown, if memory serves me. Over uh, a number, what is it, something like 15 years, I don't remember exactly. Mm -hmm. um, I, yeah, about 15 years, I had found five manuscripts that had the full vowels. Those three plus the Damascus Crown, and then eventually uh, Hebrew Union College number one. And I was told, no, it's not possible, Nehemia. Scribes never made mistake with God's name. And if they did, they would have to resolve that in 30 days and you would never see it. If you found it, that meant it wasn't actually a mistake that was made. Mm. And I did a study called The Mistake That Got It Right. Mm. And then I decided uh, to continue the research. And that's why one of the reasons I traveled around the world to look at these manuscripts. Mm -hmm. And I found there isn't a single manuscript that doesn't have some kind of mistake if it was written by humans, it's got a mistake, and hopefully the mistake was corrected. I was actually having this conversation with somebody who was uh, uh, helping me out, and he was looking through one of the, the manuscripts, and he said, wow, this, this is a pristine manuscript. There's no mistakes. I said, how do you know there's no mistakes? He said, well, there's nothing scratched out. I said, that just means they didn't, correct, they didn't find the mistakes. <laughs> it doesn't mean there's no mistakes. It just means they didn't catch the mistakes. The mistakes are probably still there if we look for them. So... I was looking for things that involved God's name. And one of the things that I was told is that they never erased the vowels or accents of God's name in the Aleppo Codex. That turned out not to be true. And in fact, not only did they erase mm -hmm. God's, the accents and vowels of God's name, they actually erased the consonants mm -hmm. of God's name. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Which is completely contrary to rabbinical mm -hmm. law, but they did it. Mm -hmm. And how do I know they did it? I found all kinds of evidence, and one of the types of evidence was this microscope. I was able to examine it with the microscope and see, okay, there's no question, in at least one of these instances, that the, the, the remnants of the letters yud heh vav are still there. Mm -hmm. And so it was clear to me in the Aleppo Codex and in, other, in another uh, uh, codex, the Sassoon 1053, it was irrefutable. Mm 
that they erased God's name because they left the top half of the letters. They only erased the bottom half, mm-hmm. right? So anybody, anybody could see that they erased mm-hmm. God's name. So what I learned and, and what I had suspected is they may have all kinds of rules that are set down by the scribes, but when the scribe is sitting in his workshop and just a single column might be two or three days' work, a sheet is a work of a week. Mm. Wow. He comes to a mistake and he has to think really hard. How, what do I do here? Right? This is my, I have to feed my kids. I'm not going to violate rabbinical law, but is that a law or is it a suggestion? Is it a tradition mm-hmm. or is it a commandment? And there are some instances where they stretch the letter of the law um, or the letter of the rabbinical laws in order to fit what, you know, some practical realities. Mm-hmm. Right? What do we do in this situation? Mm-hmm. And there are all kinds of things like that. So, one of the things that happened, um, Scott, was we were doing episode 15 of Hebrew Gospel Pearls. Mm. And as we were doing episode 15 of Hebrew Gospel Pearls, this was a game changer for me. In fact, it's, it, it, literally, it, it literally stopped everything. We were doing Hebrew Gospel Pearls, and we're talking about what happens with the Hebrew Gospel of Matthew. And Nehemiah says, you know what? I know of an example where we see this in uh, one of these big six. One that people Big don't see. Big six manuscripts of the Tanakh of the yeah. Old Testament. Okay. So he goes right on. We're, we're doing this. You got to watch Hebrew Gospel Rose 15. He goes right onto his computer. This computer's got everything on it. Same computer, yeah. And he goes tap, to this tap, tap. manuscript. We wouldn't even see this manuscript. I mean, I, I, you could tell a story, but I, I can't let you tell the story. Can I tell the story? Well, you got to tell the story, I guess. So this is, <laughs> like, this is one of the big six. Five of, well, let's say four of the big six manuscripts of the Tanakh. Aleppo Codex, Leningrad Codex. Um, uh, let's see here, uh, Damascus Crown, Oriental 4445 at the British Library, Cairo Codex of the Prophets, and Sassoon 1053. Those are the six key manuscripts of the Tanakh in Hebrew. When scholars are studying what is in the Masoretic text, they look to those manuscripts. Mm-hmm. And they look to others, but those are the six key ones that scholars have looked mm-hmm. to. And uh, four of those are in the hands of uh, public uh, institutions, the British Library, the National Library of Israel, um, the Russian National Library, and I'm missing one right here. Mm. Um, I forget where the fourth one is. In any event, two of them are not in the hands of public institutions. One of them, we don't know where it is. That's the Cairo Codex of the Prophets. Maybe it's in Cairo, maybe it isn't. Uh, the sixth one is in is the only one of the six that's in the hands of a private collection. Mm. And it was a man named uh, Jacques E. Safra, I may be mispronouncing his name. I apologize. He's a very interesting man. I've met him. Very, uh, very, very nice man. Um, very intelligent man. And he lives in Switzerland. And he comes from a very well-known Jewish family, very respected Jewish family. Just to give you an idea, the um, uh, uh, Mount Scop- there's the well, there's two campuses of the Hebrew University: Mount Scopus and Givat Ram. The Givat Ram campus is named after his uncle, the Edmund J. Safra campus. Right. So this is the nephew, and. I've been looking for this codex for years. Every time I meet someone who I think might have some, some connection to this person, I say, do you know Mr. Safra? Do you know Mr. Safra? No, I don't know him. Oh, I know his uncle. No, I don't know him. And for years, I'm trying to find this manuscript. I know it's in Geneva, Switzerland, or I believe it's in Geneva, Switzerland. But look, the Russian National Library, I send them an email, right? Or I ask someone who speaks Russian to talk to them. How do you contact a private collector, right? Who isn't exactly in the phone book, He's a, he's a billionaire, as far as I understand. Mm-hmm. They're not the most accessible people. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you get access to this? Well, I end up getting contacted by somebody who says, I'm going to study Sassoon 1053. Would you come with me? Mm. Out of the blue. He doesn't tell the story well. <laughs> There's more to it than that. But we're no, running no, out of time. No, 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 no. I'm going to stop you for a second. The person says, hey, listen, you've got this... So I've been sending you, you, you this, this person this photos inform- taken with this, micro- with this microscope, okay. Okay. specifically from the Leningrad Codex. And the Hemi is smart enough. He says, hey, can I borrow that? He's never, he said, no, you can't borrow it, but I can come with you. <laughs> well, <laughs> he, he said, can you either come with or can you lend yeah, it to yeah, me? I'm like, no, you can't borrow it. A, I'll be there. So this um, is this is yeah. Sassoon 1053, which yeah. he brought in episode 15. When I see this, Scott, mm-hmm. what happens in Sassoon 53? The scribe literally does what? So he makes a mistake where he copies a verse twice, mm-hmm. and then he realizes, okay, I can't leave a blank space because the blank spaces have significance. They could be the end of a thought and the beginning of a new thought. So he said, instead, I'm going to erase the bottom half of all the letters, including the name Yehovah. Now, oh, now okay. Scott. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Torah scroll, the name of God, 
all of mm -hmm. these things that are going on. When this happens for me, something in my in my my spirit stopped again. And I said to myself, okay, so what can we do to help people? People out there that say the name of God, okay, I'm not, I, I can't get all of the, you know, this, this part of it or that part of it. There's some simplicity to it also. And what I've appreciated both from Michael and from Nehemiah for the last 15 or 20 years is we've done so many things that can give people a chance to see the name of God, what I call pure and simple. Mm. So what I did is I took all of that information, <laughs> and here's the radical part, I made it for free. The name of God, pure and simple. I put it all in the one hyperlink PDF for people. They will see Nehemiah do something on Exodus 3.14. They'll see Michael and Nehemiah talking about the issue of Yah. I mean, that was a powerful statement, a powerful presentation. Presentation after yeah, presentation, webinar yeah. after webinar after webinar. Yeah. It's all available. The name of God, pure and simple at bfinternational.com front page. They click it. It's free. It's for them. I wanted to say that. Because I have found that there are people all over the world, and you just talked about mm -hmm. it, people who have now gotten the name and they're saying, man, I want to know more. I want to understand more. And for me, it all fits back to this. God's time, Shavuot. God's Torah. How many times have we taught about Torah? God's tetragrammaton, his name. The first time, Nehemiah unrolls mm -hmm. it the second time, it's the name. Now, there's mm -hmm. some other stuff in here. Mm. And hopefully we can share some more. I mean, I don't want to keep, you know, keep this going, but well, so, there's so much so, stuff in so, here that's So I want you to understand why, why I bothered to travel all, all around the world, both before COVID and a little bit after COVID, even I've mm -hmm. traveled a little bit as well, as much as I could to, to examine these scrolls and codexes. So I was told things by some of the, the critics of, of this book, right? Of, of, of shattering the conspiracy of silence mm -hmm. and the things that I've, I've argued over the years. Um, and and one of the things they said as well, no, that if they made a mistake with God's name, they would take a razor and they would cut it out of the scroll. Completely. They would cut it out of the codex. So if there was a mistake in the Aleppo Codex, they would cut it out. Well, my question was, okay, where'd you get that information from? And I ended up contacting the top scholar in the world on this subject, and he said, yes, I've seen them cut out from Torah scrolls, God's name, when the mistake was made. And then he stated the obvious, that would never be done in a codex because there's writing on the other side. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. Okay. So you couldn't, yeah, you could, and I actually did find yes. one uh, a printed book where they cut it out, but yeah. that's, that's a special case. By and large, you would not cut things out of a codex mm. um, be, if you were using it to read. There's one example, for example, that I found where they were using the parchment. Uh, they were reusing it to reinforce another book, mm -hmm. and it had the name Yehovah all over it. So the scribe went, went around and cut out the name Yehovah from, from a codex mm -hmm. um, of the prophets, but not so he could read from it and, and study from it, but mm -hmm. so that he could use it and it wouldn't have God's name in it and have that uh, you know, sacredness. Mm -hmm. He wasn't supposed to do that either, by the way. That's mm -hmm. also against rabbinical law, but he did it. But he wasn't going to do it with the name Yehovah. Mm -hmm. But it couldn't be done in the Aleppo Codex, because mm -hmm. if you did it in the Aleppo Codex, well, then you've cut out something from the other side, mm -hmm. right? Well, that's kind that's, of logical. Yeah. So... Um, so I, you know, I'm the kind of person who I'm told by the ex top expert in the world, yes, I've seen it. And I literally said to this person, I said, well, can you tell me what those scrolls were? I'll fly anywhere in the world, this was before COVID, to go see those. He said, I don't remember. I've been looking at scrolls for, for 40 years. I'm like, okay, fine. I better go look at the scrolls myself. And I traveled to all the major libraries around the world. And I did find manuscripts where they cut out God's name. Mm but not from a codex. It would never be done from a right. codex, mm -hmm. except that special case where they're no longer reading from it, right? Exactly. Certainly not one that's being read from. Um, not to fix a mistake, it would be done to uh, remove the sacredness from the parchment if you were gonna reuse the parchment. Mm -hmm. So, um, and look, I've said to people, I was born in uh, uh, Chicago, lived most, about half of my life in Israel, mm -hmm. but in my heart, I'm, I'm from Missouri, the mm -hmm. show me state. Mm -hmm. And I needed to see this for myself, and I'm glad I did, I learned all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, I learned a lot. I learned that there were situations that I was wrong about. Mm -hmm. One of the things I was wrong about is that I was told, I said this before, that they never erased a vowel or accent of God's name in the Aleppo Codex. And not only did they erase that, they erased the actual consonants. Mm. Okay, well now I've corrected the record on multiple occasions. Um, I thought something, I was told something. I remember saying though, in my defense, I wish I could see it for myself. And when I went mm -hmm. to see it for myself, I saw that what I was told was wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So going yeah. and, and, yeah. and seeing it for yourself is, is the key yeah. and, and examining yeah. it with the mm -hmm. tools that we have. Yeah. I'm sure there's more and more things we're gonna find. I mean, your first uh, discovery that's, that's 
oh, you know, made oh. it out there like crazy as the how many thousands of uh, vowel points in the name of God we, we, yeah, we and see that, And that's now. an interesting point. I've had people say, well, how many times have you found God's name with the full vowels? Well, I couldn't even tell you how many. Like, take, for example, the Damascus crown, mm -hmm. which is from the 10th century. It's one of the earliest pointed, meaning it has vowels, uh, Bible codexes that we have in the world. And almost on every page it has Yehovah with the full vowels. Mm -hmm. It's the entire Torah, and, the, and I don't know what that number is, but it's something like 1,500 times, right? Mm -hmm. um, I haven't counted the exact number, but it's almost on every page. It's over 1,000 times, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. In other ones, for example, the Aleppo Codex, there's eight places that it has the full vowels. Two of those you might be able to argue are mm -hmm. from a later scribe. Six are original. Mm -hmm. um, so there it's a very, you know, relatively limited number. Uh, other ones, it's, um, I forget the number in the, mm -hmm. the Leningrad Codex, but mm -hmm. somewhere in the 40s or 50s. Mm -hmm. So it varies based on the, the manuscript. <clears throat> but if you take the number of manuscripts or at least shelf marks, right, it's hard to count manuscripts. A lot of times we have these fragments and we don't know how those fragments we don't know how those fragments connect to other fragments. Mm. We don't know, is that part of the same same codex or are they from two different codices? But if you count all the shelf marks, I've found over 2,400 with the full vowels. Mm -hmm. Wow. And um, years ago I did a teaching and somebody said to me, okay, you found, a, you found I think it was 10 or 50 mm -hmm. or something. They said, when will you stop? I said, why would I ever stop? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and now I can tell you I've stopped. Mm -hmm. And the reason I've stopped is I ran out of manuscripts. I've okay. looked at not all the Hebrew Bible manuscripts with vowels, but all the ones that are currently available to me. Mm -hmm. I do plan in the future to do some more traveling mm -hmm. to photograph more of these codices that haven't been digitized mm -hmm. and look for more with vowels. But for now, I'm pretty much out of material <laughs> so for go, what's available to me. So go back. We find this Torah scroll. Yeah. We're with Michael. We're with mm -hmm. Nehemiah. One of the things that I say in this book is Halloween they revealed again is that eventually the scholars are going to catch up. But we're going to need something to happen. And I think it's happened. Mm. And what's happened? We have a scholar yeah. who's gone way beyond what we first started with all that time. But what's really powerful to me, uh, Scott, is that the first information is still good today. Yeah. That information on the name of God is still good today. And Nehemiah, I have to tell you, thank you, not only for step one, mm -hmm. <laughs> Leviticus chapter 23, but for step two, Leviticus chapter 24, where we open up and see the name of God, right? I mean, and, and, and there's more. Mm -hmm. There's more in this scroll. And like I said, I would love to sit with Michael and go over this scroll because I think he's, he's significant in this whole process. I am thankful to him. Mm -hmm. I'm thankful to you all. I'm thankful that we're in here. We had no idea we were going to be here, but you guys are never going to let us out of the studio. Are you? Are we ever going to get out of here? I, mean, I think I have chains on my legs. Yeah. <laughs> well, like we said in the very beginning, the, the word of God is living and active, Amen. sharper than any two-edged sword, and we're proving it here. Mm -hmm. Even though these scrolls are way before the technology mm. that you have on the desk here today, we're finding more and more. And as technology oh, man, increases, oh, man, man. we'll keep Come on, going Daniel. back to these oh, things. Yeah. Come and on. We'll keep finding more. It will oh. never oh, end. There, there's incredible things, Scott, where they've taken things that were erased in Torah scrolls and used something called multispectral imaging. And they're able to read completely the erased words. Wow! Now that costs a lot of money at this point. The technology is hasn't the price hasn't come down. So I'm not quite there yet. I well, can only afford this thing that costs about seven hundred dollars. I'll tell you what: when the, when the price comes down, will you come back? We'll, we'll look at it again. <laughs> and until May it then, be. may it be. May it be. May it be Thank brother. you so much, be, gentlemen, brother. for being yeah. here with us. This is a very exciting uh, series. Uh, like I said, I think we're going to do more because as technology increases, Amen. we're going to see more and more stuff. So thank Hallelujah. you again for joining us. All right, and thank you for joining us for Shabbat Night Live. Uh, this concludes this. This series, and I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. And until we see you next week for Shabbat Night Live, Shavuot Tov. Have a good week. Mm -hmm.